Uh, last week we finished the series in the Gospel of John, uh, but we are continuing with John's voice, another book, a letter that he wrote uh, to churches, Christian communities scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, which is now modern day Turkey. And I'm going to do a classic preacher dodge with the book of Revelation. Uh, we're only going to do the first three chapters. Uh, we're going to stay away from all of the really controversial stuff at the end, but I promise you this. Uh, we're going to do the first three chapters, these seven messages to seven churches, and then we will come at some other point um, before I retire and do the rest of the book of Revelation. All right, the really controversial stuff. But join me in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read the whole chapter uh, for us. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, by the way. Uh, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. As though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying. Fear not. I am the first and the last. 
and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now? We believe that this one who spoke to John speaks to us now. We believe that your spirit is present, that he is active, taking these words that we have read and making them powerful in our lives, in our community, and in this world. And so we ask for that work that you have promised to us this morning. These are strange things that we've read about. Would you help us not only to understand them, but to be changed by them? And to join John as he worshipped you. As he worshipped the one whom you have sent. And we pray in his name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because I said so. I hated that phrase as a kid. I hated when my parents would say to me, do it, believe it. Because I said so. As a parent, my opinions and feelings about that phrase have changed. Because honestly, there's only so much explaining that one can do. You can only explain so much. There are moments when you have to get to the place where you say, as a parent, because I said so. And that's not just for parenting. Every field of knowledge... Every major question that we ask as human beings about our world, about our lives, all of that at some point reduces to the acceptance of someone in some way saying to us, because I said so, you have to trust me on this one. And that is the way the book of Revelation begins. The book of Revelation begins with an epic, because I said so. Because I am saying so. There is a voice that is at the heart of this chapter that doesn't ask for our trust. It demands our trust. There is a voice that demands our surrender. Our willingness to accept that voice saying, because I said so. Now the book of Revelation has a lot of things to say. It has a lot of strange things to say that are difficult to understand. It is even more has things to say that are difficult to accept. Even in these first three chapter, chapters, there are harsh messages of threatened judgment. There is a message to the churches who are faithful to Jesus, obedient to Jesus, but they are suffering. They are in pain. And the message says to them, your pain isn't going away anytime soon. And so remain faithful. 
These are difficult messages not only to understand, but also to accept. And so this first chapter seeks to create a relationship of trust in which to receive those messages. And so we need to ask, why should we receive them? Why should we trust this voice when it says to us, because I said so? That is a question not only for the book of Revelation, not only for these seven letters to the seven churches. It is a question that hangs over all of Scripture. The voice of God in Scripture. Why should we trust? Why should we receive willingly this message when it is often so difficult to understand? When it is often even more difficult to accept and obey. Why should we trust this voice? Well, let's look at this first chapter of the book of Revelation and find two reasons. We should trust the voice because of who is speaking and because of who is listening. Who is speaking and who is listening? First of all, who speaks? John, of course, presents to us the book of Revelation as coming from the mouth of Jesus. And he makes it very clear that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. That is who is talking in this book. That's who is speaking these difficult messages. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And so we need to constantly be asking in this book as we read, what is Jesus like? What is the picture of Jesus that we get here? Because before anything else, this book is about him. It is the display of who God is in Jesus. And so we need to ask, what is he like? What does he look like? And I can't dig through every image that is in this first chapter. We don't have time to do that. But let me summarize with two impressions of what Jesus looks like here in Revelation chapter 1. First of all, he looks like a scary judge. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 1 looks like a scary judge. Much of the imagery of this chapter is, is drawn from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And Daniel talked about a royal figure, the Son of Man, who was coming. And this royal figure was coming, and he is a frightening figure, because he comes, and he comes, and he destroys God's enemies. He punishes God's enemies. He establishes God's kingdom and he enforces God's law, God's justice. And the book of Revelation is making it very clear that Jesus is that figure. He is that figure and more. As one author said of this chapter, we don't find here the pale Galilean that we find in many of our paintings. We find here a towering, furious figure who will not be managed. Jesus speaks as a judge, and he speaks not only with truth, he speaks with unrivaled 
power. A sword coming out of his mouth. The sound of his voice like getting so close to a waterfall that you can't hear anything else. And his right and his ability to judge extends over all people, over all nations, and it extends over all history. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. The Alpha, the Omega, the First, and the Last. He's a scary judge. And a lot of people in Tallahassee, Florida... Uh, Perhaps some people in this room have a problem with that image of Jesus. Because one of our highest cultural values is not being judgmental. We can be almost anything else in our culture, but don't be judgmental. That is one of the highest, one of the greatest sins in our culture and We find Jesus here, kind of judgy, very judgmental. The one who said, judge not that you be not judged, is a judge with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that's a problem in our culture, but we need to remember and we need to be honest and we need to recognize that every person and every group has some point at which they are going to desire judgment. Every person, every group has one line, at least, which divides good and evil, righteous and wicked. Every group, every person at some point longs for wrong to be named And resisted, punished, opposed. So, for example, I heard a speech not long ago by Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright is not a raging fundamentalist, okay? Definitely more on the progressive side of our political and cultural spectrum. And she was giving a speech and she was talking about the role of women in the workplace. And she said, and this is a direct quote, there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women at the office, who undermine other women in the workplace. And her very progressive San Francisco audience erupted into applause when she said that. That's judgment, right? That is a desire for judgment. There is a special place in hell. That is a culture, a person drawing a line and being judgmental. Every group does that. Every person does that. And so if we are going to accept as true this image of Jesus as a scary judge... We do have to then ask, what do we do about the scary part? What do we do about the frightening part of this image of Jesus? John, 
who was beloved by Jesus. Remember in the Gospel of John, he is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper. Do you remember that? What happens now? John is not leaning on Jesus. He keels over, convinced he's about to die in the presence of his friend. What do we do with that? What do we do with the scary part of Jesus being a judge? Well, notice, although John falls over as if dead, he does not stay there. This furious figure, the Son of Man, with his right hand, the hand of power and military might, he reaches out and he touches him. And he says one of the most often repeated and important phrases in the Bible. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. You are safe here in the presence of God's righteous judgment. And why does Jesus do that? Because he is not only a scary judge. He is also a compassionate judge. Jesus does that because he's not only a scary judge, he is a compassionate priest. What does a priest do? A priest brings God to people and people to God. And so Jesus here, the figure of the Son of Man, he is dressed in the uniform of an Old Testament priest. His shining face reminds us of the words that God gave to the priests in the Old Testament in Numbers 6 when he said to them, Say to the people, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. And his face shining reminds us of the shining, bright presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God that descended and dwelled at the temple where the priests did their ministry. And the whiteness of the hair of this son of man and the fire of his eyes remind us of the purity and the purifying work that had to be done for God's people to be in God's presence. Because that's what Jesus does. He makes it possible. For people to be safe in the righteous, judging presence of God. And he does that not only as a priest, but by becoming the sacrifice. Verse 5, he loves us and his blood frees us from our sin. He entered into death the judgment on our sin. What should happen to us in the presence of God? He entered into death so that he can reach out and lift up John. And lift us and lift up us. So that in the presence of God, we can stand and live rather than fall over and die. That's who speaks in this book. And that's why we should willingly receive the message that he has for us. A few weeks ago, my wife and I 
we went to the 60th anniversary concert of the FAMU Gospel Choir. And in the printed program for that concert, they kept using a phrase that I'd never heard used before, but they kept talking about this style of music as as giving people a closer-to-God feeling. A closer-to-God feeling. And they said that's the attraction of gospel music. And it struck me that there were people at that concert that there are people who love gospel music who don't also who don't love the gospel who don't believe the gospel why because they still long for that closer to god feeling and that made me think of the artist Vincent van Gogh who apparently rejected his the christian faith faith of his youth but who still talked about his art as reaching for something beyond. Something transcendent. That's why he was so obsessed with painting the stars. He was reaching for something beyond. He was looking for that closer to God feeling. You see, although in our sin we have rejected God, we still miss him. We still long to be close to him. We still long to stand in his transcendent presence and live rather than die. And music and art and nature and learning, these are all good things, but they pale in comparison to the one whom we are given here in this chapter. To the one who speaks to us not only in this book, but throughout scripture. The one who is the righteous judge, but who is also a compassionate priest. That's why you can trust him when he says, because I said so. Because that's who he is. That is what he is doing. That is why we should willingly, humbly receive the message that he has for us in his word. Now that's enough, but that's not all. This chapter not only gives us a speaker, it also gives us an audience. And it teaches us to receive the message of this book, not only because of the one who talks, but because of the ones who listen. And who is the audience in this chapter? Who's the audience? Well, it's, it's, there's seven listeners, aren't there? There are seven listeners in this chapter. That number seven, of course, is a significant number in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis, the seven days of creation. It's, it symbolizes the fullness of God's intention, the fullness of life that God designed and desires for his creation. And the book of Revelation takes that intention, that design, that desire for creation and connects it to these seven Christian communities scattered throughout Asia Minor. And their location is significant because they live at the boundary between Europe and Asia. And so they represent the gospel message spreading from Jerusalem 
to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is God reclaiming His creation. Renewing His creation through these seven congregations in these seven cities. That's what God is doing in those who listen to these messages. But that's not all. There are more sevens in this chapter. There are seven spirits, there are seven stars, and there are seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, they take us back to the Old Testament temple. There was a golden lampstand in the Old Testament temple, and it represented the presence of God or the presence of God's people in the presence of God. And another prophet, everyone's favorite prophet, Zechariah, picked up that imagery from the temple and he used it and he multiplied it to seven lampstands to talk about the possibility of a renewed people of God who would not only live in the in Palestine, in Jerusalem, but would spread throughout all the earth and would burn with the presence of God. And then the seven stars, they connect these heavenly or these earthly lights to heavenly lights. Angelic messengers to God's people. Heavenly postmen, letter carriers from God to these churches. Connecting Heaven and earth. But there's an even deeper connection between heaven and earth in this chapter. The seven spirits mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. Which isn't seven individual spirits. It is the one spirit of God poured out on the church. Throughout the earth. Which is why John can say of us. That not only is Jesus a king. But we in Jesus are a kingdom. Not only is Jesus a priest, but verse 6, we are priests of God in Jesus. This is a glorious picture, not only of who Jesus is, but who we are as the church in him. But something's a little bit off here. That's a pretty picture But there's something just a bit off. There's a blur. There's a smudge. Because where does John receive and recount this vision? On a prison island. Isolated and alone. Suffering. Because of his witness to the gospel. And he doesn't just use words like kingdom. But he uses not-so-glorious words like tribulation, patient endurance, suffering. And if you continue to read through these chapters, you don't find pretty white picket fence churches. And you don't find churches full of nice, clean, moral people. You find communities that are bickering, Communities that are straying, waning in their love for Jesus, suffering fierce opposition, struggling to keep their heads above water in a culture that wants to drown them in idolatry and immorality. 
You see, here's the shock of the book of Revelation. It's not all the crazy images and all the crazy things that come later. The real shock of the book of Revelation is that the glory of God's kingdom happens in the mess of the church. The beauty and power of God's presence dwells in these disastrous situations. The epic expectations of Daniel and Zechariah and the rest of Scripture being met, fulfilled in these these messy groups of people who live waiting for the return of the Son of Man. And that's why we should receive these messages. That's why we should trust what these messages say to us. Because as they call us to repent, as they call us to renew our love and our faith and obedience to Jesus, as they tell us that our pain is not going to end anytime soon, as they call us to endurance, as they call us to patient waiting for Christ, they make us resplendent with the presence and the purposes of God. You see, in your tiresome struggle against sin, in our stumbling attempts to live faithful to Jesus, here's the reality. God is crushing the head of the serpent. God is defeating the dragon. God is bringing Babylon to her knees in the midst of our imperfections. In the midst of our painful waiting. In the midst of our struggles and our suffering. I went to a movie recently and it was one of those movies that was trying to be a film. You know, wanting to be artsy. And important, and so it was really depressing and sad, and, and, and it ended very ambiguous and unresolved. And when the credits rolled, the audience just groaned. And I heard someone behind me murmur, "That's it. That's it." Do you ever murmur that at the end of a day? <laughs> Do you ever murmur that about your life? Do you ever murmur that about Centerpoint Church? About the church of Jesus throughout this city and throughout the world? That's it? Is that all there is? The book of Revelation answers that with a resounding no. No, that's not it. There is so much more that you can't see. In the boring ordinariness of your life and our life together, God is at work. God is winning over evil. 
God is shining with the beauty of His glorious presence. God is accomplishing the fullness of His intention for all of creation. In your ordinary struggles, in your ordinary pain, here at this ordinary little congregation in Tallahassee, Florida. That's why we need this book. That's why we need to willingly and humbly receive the message of Scripture. That's why we need to value this word that God has given to us because it not only teaches us that, but it accomplishes that. It does that in us. Causes us to become resplendent with the glory of God. Took a walk around my neighborhood this week and noticed for the first time, I don't know why I had never noticed this before, but I started noticing how many items there were in people's yards and houses that were designed to do something with the wind. Like wind chimes that, that made noise, uh, uh, flags that flutter in the breeze, those swirly, twirly gig things, sorry for the technical jargon, I don't know what they're called, uh, that move with the wind. And I, I was thinking about this passage and this sermon, and I thought, that's it. That's what the Word of God does in us. It makes us into people who, who catch and move and sound with the wind of God. It makes us into chimes that ring with the joy of his kingdom come. It makes us into flags, into whirly, twirly gig things that move. With the wind of God making all things new. So why wouldn't we trust his word? Why wouldn't we receive his message when he says to us, because I said so? Let's be a people who joyfully Willingly and humbly listen to the voice of the one who, yes, is our judge, but who is judged for us so that he can become a priest to bring us in the presence of God and make us priests, taking the glory of God to the world around us. Let's pray.